0: Please open or scroll to the book of Acts. That's that's supposed to be 26 verse. 20, excuse me, chapter 26 that we're going to be in today. So verse, excuse me, chapter 26 of Acts. Father, thank you this morning, Lord, for your presence, Lord, as we continue to worship You by looking through Your Word. We ask, Lord, that Your Spirit would come, Lord, for the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that You would, as I have prayed, continue to cause me to speak the Word properly, to open up the truth to all who hear, Lord, that indeed the name of Christ may be lifted up glorified, and by this word, Lord, you would draw us near to yourself and remind us of the salvation that is only in Christ by the hearing of the gospel, we ask. Amen. All right, so here we are in Acts chapter 26. And this is going to be a rather dramatic story that is contained here within the New Testament. And it has to do with Paul's final defense of his ministry after his arrest, just before he sails for Rome and the book of Acts comes to a close. And out of the 29 verses here today, all but three are Paul speaking, telling his story. He is still in Caesarea in this passage where he has been For several years, still imprisoned for preaching Jesus Christ, for preaching the gospel. And this passage of scripture reads very nicely, almost verbatim, as some kind of, almost like a movie script. It is a beautiful, eloquent passage, as recorded by Dr. Luke, of Paul's bold defense of himself in front of a large, very formal group of leaders, and important people of Caesarea, what we might call today the glitterati of Caesarea of that day. And Paul's arrest and trials, or hearings if we want to call them that, are a long haul through the book of Acts. He goes to Jerusalem and is arrested in chapter 21. And here we are in chapter 26, and he is just now making his fifth and final defense of himself, of what was recorded here in the scriptures, prior to his embarking to Rome to finally face Caesar. His first defense is before the mob in Jerusalem, then before the Sanhedrin, then before Felix, then before Festus, and finally here today before King Agrippa. And all this is over a period of two or three years. And in all that, he was never found guilty of any crime. What crime was he arrested for? That of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even at the end of today's defense, the powers that be say, this man has done nothing wrong. So in that, there is no suspense. But each and every time he makes his defense, what he is really doing is preaching some part of the gospel and pointing these people to Christ. So who is this King Agrippa to whom Paul will be speaking to and making his final defense? This is King Agrippa II, and he is of the family of Herod, or what we may call a Herodian. And this is a rather large, notorious family, and I'm sure you would be familiar with this man's infamous relatives because they appear many times in the New Testament. First of all, this King Agrippa, to whom Paul is speaking, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was king when Jesus was born, and he is the one who the Magi went to, and the one who ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to be killed. And secondly, this King Agrippa's great-uncle is Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. Closer to home, the father of our King Agrippa of today's sermon is the one who beheaded James, one of the original twelve apostles, and had Peter locked up to kill him also. And later, he went to this same city we are in today, in our text, Caesarea, where he gave a speech about how great he was, and he was eaten by worms and died. And this King Agrippa himself has a sister Bernice with him at all times, including during today's proceedings. And historically, it is understood that he was in an ongoing incestuous relationship with his sister. But in spite of all that, we must say of all the Herodians, this King Agrippa that Paul is speaking to is likely the most sympathetic to the Jews of any of them he was very, very familiar with all things Jewish. He was even in charge at that time of appointing the priests in Jerusalem. And because of that, he was also familiar with this new religion of Christianity. And so it is to the visiting King Agrippa, along with Festus, who was hosting King Agrippa at his palace, and to this large gathering that Paul is now going to speak And in the text right before today's text, Luke lets us know that the day begins with everyone entering the proceedings with what the scripture calls pomp. So in addition to King Agrippa, his sister Bernice and their host Festus, also there that day listening to Paul are what are called the military tribunes, which would be the leaders of the military, something like the generals of that day along with what is called the prominent men of the city. As one commentator tried to provide a vivid verbal picture of what his hearing looked like he described it this way, the gathering of a king, a princess, a great Roman representative of Caesar with their splendid retinues, heralds, flag bearers and men-at-arms as well as the great officers of the Roman army and the chief men of Caesarea was a site well calculated to leave a profound impression. So it is something akin to like a miniature joint session of Congress for the region in which Paul is imprisoned. And we should probably notice as an aside that Paul is fulfilling what Luke had said in chapter 21 of his gospel about what is happening here to Paul, What Luke said could, in fact, surely happen to any believer in the end times, which would be today as well. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Paul did not have his ESV Bible to refer to, but surely our chapter today is a fulfillment of what Luke was talking about. They were not able to, as it says, withstand or contradict what this innocent man said. And what confidence did Paul have God himself had appeared to Paul and said to him previously in Acts 23 after his arrest when he spent the night in prison before appearing at the Sanhedrin, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So certainly God gave Paul this assurance of God's certain protection. And so we might say, well, that was easy for Paul to stand before all his adversaries without fear. He had God's direct promise that he was eventually going to Rome. But, of course, Paul did not have a nicely bound New Testament to read like we do. He couldn't just pick up the New Testament like we can and read hundreds of certain never-fail promises that God has made to all of us believers. So as our chapter 26 begins here, Paul is standing there in chains, a prisoner who has been brought in from whatever prison cell or holding he had been in, so that there was a significant contrast between his appearance and all others at this hearing. Not only since those looking on were not prisoners but since these so-called leading citizens with their servants and soldiers were there in what we said was their pomp. So we see the picture of a lowly looking man standing there in front of all the glitterati. And so Paul goes right to it here in chapter 26 making a bold defense of himself. And as I read this I will try to make it somewhat like Paul was actually there, like a man standing before a large crowd in an auditorium with no microphone. Verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate. "...that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews." And as we mentioned, Agrippa is familiar with Judaism. He even appoints the priests in Jerusalem. And Paul then says in verse 3, "...especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews." Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul is about to make the same points he has made in prior defenses since his arrest that he has been a strict follower of the laws of the Jews. And he confirms this when he continues in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem It's known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And in the law from the Old Testament, the understanding by most Jews and certainly by the Pharisees is consistent with what Paul says as he continues. And now I stand here in trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So it all leads up to that. God raises the dead. That is what Paul is proclaiming here in his fifth and final defense of himself recorded in the Bible, and that is consistent with what the Jews believed. So he starts here in chapter 26 with common ground with the Jews, what was taught in the Old Testament that the dead would be resurrected. And we see this also when Paul was arrested and he gave his second of his five defenses previously in Acts. When he was before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, he cried out, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And again before Felix at another of his defenses, he says, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But then Paul goes on here in chapter 26 with more to the fuller understanding of what this rising from the dead is. He says immediately after that here in our text in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he turns a corner away from just raising the dead something the Jews can relate to, and brings it right to Christ. Then he is going to go on and describe his former way of life. And he is going to give his testimony about how he was before Christ, and then what Christ did for him, and then the forgiveness that Christ offers for all mankind. And he tells a terribly embarrassing story of his former way of life he briefly summarizes what a bad guy he was, a terrible sinner, and in not holding back or sugarcoating it, he immensely glorifies God. The starkness of change, the total transformation when he lays out all the dirty laundry of his former life for all in attendance to hear. In that telling it, God is greatly glorified by the seemingly impossible change that anyone watching can see and hear by his testimony and proclamation of Christ's work in his life. And I think we have to read this very carefully to appreciate what our beloved Apostle Paul was like before he was converted, before he was knocked off his horse. This favorite Christian brother of ours was a very nasty guy. So Paul put confessing Christians in prison. He murdered them. You know, the guy who drives the getaway car at the murder is convicted of murder, just like the one who did the actual killing. So Paul also is a murderer as he cast his vote against them. He says he tried to make them blaspheme, meaning to deny or curse Christ. So Paul put Christians in prison murdered them, forced them to deny Christ. That's our friend Paul. And I'm wondering if any of this sounds familiar to you if you check out the news around the world or even surf a few Christian websites. Listen to just a few brief summaries of some recent events. January 13, 2013. A criminal court in the central Egyptian city of Barai So'uf gave a 15-year prison sentence to a woman and her seven children for converting to Christianity. June 2013. Tamarat Wodrigas, a Christian living on Ethiopia's border, was arrested by local police. It was claimed that Wodrigas wrote, Jesus is Lord, on the notebook of a student. September 2013, Laos. The chief of a village in central Laos has threatened to expel 50 recent converts to Christianity from their homes if they do not renounce their new faith. Ethiopia, November. Wahazit Debasai died of pneumonia following a year of imprisonment because she refused to denounce her Christian beliefs. And finally, December 13, three weeks ago, Bishop Armia Bolos, a prominent Egyptian Muslim convert to Christianity, has been arrested. Hmm. So these things that Paul did are the very same things that go on today. Paul was just like these guys. That's not the usual way we think of Paul. But that was really Saul, not Paul. Saul hated Jesus Christ. He was unredeemed in his heart and mind. But Paul was a new man with a new heart freely given to him by Christ. It was pre-Christ Saul who it says, In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What is this raging fury that is translated here before us? It might also be restated or amplified more fully like this. Further than the upper limit of derangement, acting completely irrational, that is, as though exceedingly out of one's senses, extraordinarily insane. Now does that sound vaguely familiar? A hostile person or persons perceiving what is to them a Christian and persecuting them out of extraordinary insanity even to foreign cities? I mean, our cities? But didn't the converted Paul tell us one of God's promises to Christians in this regard when he said in Second Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what happened to Saul to turn him upside down from basically what someone might call today some kind of a terrorist to a man who would die for the proclamation of the gospel? Paul continues on in verse 12. In this connection, I journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a service and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So here, Paul receives his calling from God. So, Paul got knocked off his horse by Jesus and was forever eternally changed. And that is our prayer for all non-believers, for all living in darkness, that they would be knocked off their horse by Jesus. And I'm curious, was anyone praying for Saul to be knocked off his horse? Were those Christians in the church praying for God to strike him dead? To rid the earth of him? Give him what his actions deserved. Or were they praying, God, please open the eyes of this man blinded by Satan who has taken Saul captive to do the enemy's will. Begging and pleading and persistent prayer, please God, save the most hardened impossible sinner. Did they realize as converted Paul did later when he wrote in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And did the Christians realize that the only difference between Saul and them was that as the converted Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians about people like the unconverted Saul, in their case, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that for those believers, as opposed to Saul, Paul would write about them, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has done that to them they have not done that to themselves. Of course, I think those Christians, many of them had severe doubts that although all things are possible with God, perhaps Saul was a bit over the top and beyond reach. As Luke first describes Saul's conversion experience in Acts chapter 9, he describes Jesus preparing the disciple Ananias to restore Saul's sight. And this is how Ananias responds to even the Lord Himself appearing directly to Ananias in a vision and giving him a command about Saul. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go! Go! For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now there is a great call to ministry how Jesus sums that up. In his great kindness to Saul, he saves him, brings him into the spacious rest of God forgiven and justified and prepared for the God-empowered Christian life, no longer trapped as a Pharisee in trying to get right with God by the impossible path of obeying all the laws. And what is the way Jesus sums up this abundant new life he has prepared for Saul? I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So back in Acts 26, Jesus continues telling Saul about his future as Paul, giving him a summary of his calling to the Jews, but especially to the Gentiles. And in it, Jesus confirms what we just heard about what makes the difference between a believer and a non-believer. Continuing on in verse 18, Paul, "...to open their eyes..." So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there is Paul's one sentence summary of the gospel he says he heard from the Lord Jesus. Open their eyes. Turn from darkness to light. Satan to God forgiveness of sins, sanctification through faith in Christ. He compacts it while he can, while he still has the ear of King Agrippa. So Jesus in this compact summary of the gospel, as retold retold by Paul says, turn from darkness to light. So now if you'll bear with me, I'm just going to tell a little story. I recall when I was a very young boy, the television stations here in Los Angeles would not broadcast overnight. They would just turn off the transmitters at midnight. There would just be fuzz when you turned on the TV. And I'm not sure anybody here under 50 can even imagine a world like that. The extent of deprivation. (laughs) So as a little boy... I would sit with my brother and sister in front of the old black and white TV at 5.59 a.m. on Sunday morning, waiting for them to start broadcasting again. And the first show that would come on before the cartoons would be a show called The Christophers, which may have been orthodox, I don't recall. The only thing I remember about this show, waiting impatiently through it until the cartoons came on, was the beginning the first thing to appear on the TV at 6 a.m. was just a candle on a candlestick and nothing else. Then a man's hand with a match would appear and light the candle and a voice would say, it is better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And somehow I knew it was about Jesus Christ, but I wasn't sure what it meant. But that always stuck with me to this day. And just that tiny bit of light in my darkness was just a tiny seed of faith. So do not despise small beginnings or simple statements about the gospel. How brief Paul's statements of the gospel will be here in Acts 26, yet we will see how penetrating it was when we later see what King Agrippa's few words of response are to Paul's defense. So then, Paul goes on and recounts his post-conversion life. He is going to summarize his ministry to King Agrippa. Going on in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. Now here he goes. He's going to give a summary of what he's going to tell all these people. That they should repent and turn to God. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Like Matthew 4 records, immediately after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, when He first begins His ministry, He says this about Jesus. From that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And also Mark, in the first chapter, records the same thing. First things first. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, Paul continues to the crowd here in verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that... By being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul again appeals to the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, the suffering Messiah. For example, we could go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 53, Messianic Psalms like Psalm 13, 22, and many others. And Jesus confirms this Himself in Luke 24, which we will be hearing about from Pastor Joe in a few weeks. But actually, that's two more chapters, so it could be six months. Okay. So Jesus, after rising from the dead, speaking to the two disciples that are walking to Emmaus, He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, at this point in Paul's defense, it is more than our dear host Festus, who sits near King Agrippa, can possibly bear. So he stops Paul. Paul. But of of course, Paul just continues on in the next three verses. And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind! Your great learning is driving you out of your mind! But Paul said to Festus, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus! but I am speaking true and rational words." Then he turns to the king and continues, "...for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner." And then Paul goes on to verse 27, for his final plea to King Agrippa, who he is most directly addressing throughout. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And we will see by King Agrippa's response in the next verse that Paul is going right to the heart of the matter. He's not dancing around the gospel, but driving it home. One can see from King Agrippa's response that he knows Paul is trying to convert him. Is that offensive to the king? Hopefully at some point, everyone that knows us, that knows we are Christians, will at some point say to us, or at least think it in their mind, are you trying to convert me? that would be a really good sign that we are fulfilling Christ's command to us to be His ambassadors. And Paul's response in verse 29 is like a perfect prayer that not only Paul can say that day, but each of us could say daily for our unbelieving family and friends and strangers. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I keep King Agrippa's Question in verse 28, and Paul's response in our last verse for today, verse 29, quoted and framed with a picture on the wall. It's not an actual photograph of the proceedings. Okay. So, Agrippa and Paul, as they finish, after Paul had asked Agrippa, Do you believe? Then verses 28 and 29, Agrippa's only response to Paul that day. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains." So what a picture! Paul saying, be like me, a Christian, radically changed and forgiven. And is there any irony of him saying, except for these chains, when he is the one without chains? He is the one who has had the chains of the enslavement of sin already removed from him by Christ. He is the one who is free, unchained from sin by God through faith in Christ. Those he speaks to, these unbelievers, continue to have their unseen chains of sin firmly attached to them. The entire multitude in that hearing looking at that pathetic prisoner in chains as He says to all those listening in their fancy pomp, Be like me! And they surely laugh at Him, if not in their hearts. They likely feel sorry for this very respectful, formal speaking man, a madman who believes in some dead man being alive again offering forgiveness of sins through faith in His death and resurrection, making demands upon all who live. So we see Paul has a single focus to simply preach the gospel because he believes this seemingly simple statement he makes at the beginning of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone Who believes. So Paul rests upon the power of God through the gospel itself, by God's work in people's hearts. So he keeps it simple. Like he says in 1 Corinthians And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul thinks of how he used to rely upon the law to get right with God, to know and please God, and now he understands the reality of Christ, the ministry of the Spirit in changing hearts and minds. Like he talks about in Second Corinthians. How much more glorious is this new covenant that Moses used to put a veil over his face because the Israelites could not even gaze at his face. But amazingly now, the ministry of the Spirit of Christ is so much more glorious. So he says, this is a no-brainer. And he says in 2 Corinthians, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And since he says he is very bold, what does he do with boldness? He says this also, that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of, of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us yes God is making his appeal through the gospel but he's only speaking when Paul and we do the speaking because God is not speaking anymore except through this word and was Paul's imprisonment a sidetrack to his ministry a roadblock to preaching the gospel? What does Paul say about his life in a Roman prison a year or so after this part of Acts we just read today? In Philippians, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And is he right in thinking he really was accomplishing anything? Because at the end of the letter, it is apparent, it is apparent that he has infiltrated, if I can use that word, the prison itself with the gospel. Because this is what Paul says when he says goodbye from prison. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And that was Nero's household of all places. And what does Paul do in Acts in 16 when he's in prison again? About midnight... Paul and Silas had lost all hope of being rescued. No, that's not what it says. It says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And then there was the big earthquake. The place fell apart. And the terrified jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and he will be saved you and your household and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house And so I have here a jar and in it are some quarters that I would like to say represent what is often called our times our talents And our treasures, a representation of the three T's, summarizing all the resources that God has given each one of us. And we have to use these three T's of times, talents, and treasures to live and take care of life, all the things that we must do to make it from one day to the next. We only have these, let's be realistic, limited resources. And these are all good things. All of them very good, very important, very necessary. And so we use up the three T's we've got, and then there is simply no more. So we must take the time to wake up, brush our teeth, bathe, make coffee, be nice to our spouse or parents, eat, sleep, pray, read our Bibles, go to work, go to school study, go to church, fellowship, drive here and there, clean the house, mend the clothes, take care of grandma, be with friends, take care of and educate our children, play sports, watch sports, help out at church, make meals, help needy people, have some fun, do the wash, clean the car, and so on and so on and so on. And after all that, what is left to put toward being highly intentional about the calling that Paul speaks of over and over again and that Jesus has called us to just before going back to heaven, that is to make disciples of all people. Perhaps not much. The question is, if we handed over a list of all our weekly activities and ATM and checkbook records to an unbelieving expert time manager and said, review my life to see how you would summarize it, would they come back and say, well, I can see from all this that one thing among these others is clearly apparent. You have a definite desire to get that thing they call the gospel to as many people as possible. Please believe me, I am preaching to myself since I am daily reminded of how important this is. And not everyone has the gift to be an evangelist. The position of evangelist, as Paul speaks of in Philippians, along with pastors and teachers. But we all have the command to do it. So we have different gifts that is clear. And it is through those gifts that we can fulfill this command. I know one woman who has a tremendous gift of speaking to total strangers in most any situation and starting conversations. Through this gift of, I don't know what it is, internal hospitality or something like that, she fulfills the command to be an ambassador, as Paul says, for Christ and ask about their spiritual condition. She is able to point someone to Christ in most any situation. At least she puts a pebble in their shoe, like Greg Kokel says. Others have no such gift. They are rather awkward around new people, are mostly tongue-tied in social Conversations that would lend themselves to sharing Christ. So, for them to share the gospel, they must pay people $5 to listen to them. But surely everyone has some type of gift that they can use to fulfill this command. So, Paul is finished now with his final defense recorded in the Bible. An innocent man, a chained prisoner, now destined to stand before Caesar's court. Surely just looking at him and listening to him, their thinking about Paul that day would be confirmed in what Paul says of himself in Second Corinthians. We are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. A man who normally says, I have nothing, and that day he again has nothing but the addition of his prison chains. He who has nothing says Follow Christ and you will possess everything. This man who writes in First Timothy, For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. He says, Follow Christ and you will possess everything. Everything because what can a man give in exchange for his soul? A lost soul destined for hell that can only be redeemed through faith in Christ? For Paul, his reward is not here, but it is kept securely by Christ in heaven in the life to come. And it is not only in the life to come that he relies upon God's promises, but every day of his persecuted gospel-preaching life. As he says in Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as lost, because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. <clears throat> Father, thank You that Lord, You have entrusted to us, Lord, Your servants, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank You that it is only by Your Spirit, by Your mercy, by Your grace, that anyone hearing that Gospel can believe, Lord. And so I ask, Lord, that You would burn that in our hearts, Lord, that we would indeed be Your ambassadors, taking the Gospel to those who are blinded, who are lost, who are unbelieving. And Lord, even to the point today in this room, Lord, anyone who is not believing God, would You do that merciful act as only You can do, Lord. And Father, as we take the communion now, Lord, I ask that You would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to recognize and remember Your death upon the cross. Your bleeding and dying for us, Lord, that makes our faith even possible for you to have this great mercy upon us.